Welcome to Truth 30 with Joey Dumont, a podcast that debates our society's most politically compelling topics through the lens of slow journalism. Each show is investigated with a focus on narrative as well as discovery. We believe that the complexity of our culture today cannot be crammed into six-minute television segments or snippets and memes on social media, where ideology and entertainment has overtaken the creed of historical reporting. On the program, you'll hear the opinions of subject matter experts to help you separate the signal from the noise. Our collective goal is to better understand one another, not win a battle. After watching, you'll be reminded that a proper debate is not about victory, but that of inquiry, education, and viewpoint diversity. So tune in and talk amongst yourselves. You may even learn a thing or two. Paul Embury is a British author, political commentator, firefighter, and trained union activist. He has worked as a columnist for Unheard and Huffington Post, and was hosted the political correction segment of GB News. Embry is a member of the Blue Labor Campaign Movement. Embry was born and raised in Dagenham. He served as a firefighter with the London Fire Brigade and was on the executive council of the Fire Brigade's union. He became a member of the Labor Party in 1994. In 2020, Embry published his book, Despised, Why the Modern Left Loathes the Working Class. And we talk at length about the parallels of Britain's Labor Party and America's Democratic Party, and they are stunningly similar. I hope you enjoy Paul's insight and candor as much as I did. Well, hello, Mr. Paul Embry. Thanks for joining me on the show this morning. As you know, uh, we have some mutual friends, peers, Lucy Massoud, who you used to work with as a union rep at the Firefighter, and Helen Joyce and Julie Bindle, and all these wonderful people actually said to me off camera, you need to meet this guy, Paul Embry, and you need to read his book. I think you guys have a lot in common. And I laughed because I said, well, coincidentally, my buddy Simon, who actually lives in Hazelmere, right outside of London, sent me your book, Despised. And for those of you on camera, this is it. It's Despised, Why the Modern Left Loathes the Working Class. And to be clear, my buddy Simon is a conservative. And so we go back and forth debating politics quite often. And although we don't agree on everything, we agreed that you nailed it on this book specific to the Labor Party, what has happened with the Labor Party. And then for me, what was I found so interesting was that there's so many parallels between what's going on or what has been going on with the Labor Party in Britain and what's going on with the Democratic Party here in the United States. And so I just wanted to uh, thank you again for writing a book. It was fantastic. And just to kind of frame the discussion, I wanted to read a little bit from your introduction to Despised because it really helps the listener understand I think the width and breadth of, of your opinions here. The rupture between the Labor Party and the working class was an accident waiting to happen, and one which didn't take unique powers of observation or political wisdom to foresee. It didn't begin with Jeremy Corbyn's election as a leader. It had, in fact, been brewing for the greater part of three decades, during which the party had swallowed a poisonous brew of social and economic liberalism, intensifying significantly in the second half of that period. The further the party traveled along the road to imagine sunlit uplands of cosmopolitan liberalism and global market forces renouncing much of its working class base. And I thought that was really astute. And then it says here, but so many in the labor movement, including those among its upper echelons, didn't go to these places or speak to these people, at least not enough. Many spent their working lives in professional occupations or the public or voluntary sector in their spare time moving in the world of trade union committees labor party meetings and assorted protest movements. They confused Twitter with Britain. And I thought that was a great way to start your book because it really helped me as a leader understand, or excuse me, as a 
uh, student of this, what you guys are dealing with over there. And so thanks again for writing it. And, uh, you know, I think it's a good place to start kind of where you you started out as a trade union member at the age of 16. Right. Yeah. And um, I uh, my first job was a Saturday job uh, stacking shelves in a supermarket in my hometown of Dagenham. Uh, very much a working class area. Um, my parents, like most people in, in the place where I grew up, were labour supporting people. Um, they weren't particularly political in any overt sense, but my dad was the trade union representative, labour union, as you would call it, representative at his workplace. My my mum also worked for a trade union in a secretarial capacity. So I, I always knew that we were labor uh, i was i knew from an early age that the labor party was there to represent working people that they were a force for good that trade unions were a force for good there to, there for speak to speak uh, for, for ordinary working people in the workplace um and so it just seemed natural to me that uh, when i when i took my first job as a 16 year old and, and there was union representation at the workplace that that i should join uh, and it was my first involvement with the the labor movement from that age and um I've seen a significant number of changes. That would have been early 1991. Uh, and the labour movement has changed fundamentally, I would say, in the 30 years since, uh, not for the better, um, most certainly in many respects for the worse. And as a result of that, there has been, which I'm sure we'll come on to, Joey, a huge disconnect between the labour movement, uh, its political arm, the Labour Party in Britain, and and working class people. So so that's that's pretty much my background, you know, working class labor movement, trade unionist. And, and it's through that prism really that a lot of my political views were were formed and where I am today. And you've been a member of the Labour Party since 1994 and you were a firefighter, correct? Yeah, and I still am technically. You um, still are. Okay, great. <laughs> and a lot of people don't realise it because I do quite a bit of media stuff now and quite a bit of writing, and uh, people think I've left that behind. But no, it's still it's still what I call my day job, uh, and right. uh, I'm very proud to to be a firefighter. It's something that I've done for for about 25 years now. Um, and through being a firefighter, became an activist quite early on in my firefighting career with the Fire Brigades Union, the main union for, uh, for, for firefighters in Britain, um, and was an activist for many years, worked my way up as an official in the union, eventually sat on the, the National Executive Council of the Fire Brigades Union, um, became active in the, the wider Labour movement, joined the Labour Party, as you said, at, uh, at 1994. Um, but, but yeah, so I'm still I'm still technically a firefighter, but people tend to know me now for other things. <laughs> and you grew up in Dagenham. And I think part of the story that I could relate to, I grew up in uh, Minnesota, which is the Midwest here in the United States. And a lot of my family and friends and neighbors were artisans, carpenters, laborers, hardworking people. Um, and I think you had a lot we had a lot in common that way. And you want to talk a little bit about kind of the community of Dagenham and specifically how that influenced you, not only with your, your labor movement, but just kind of your, your tie to family and not conservative as the word is used today in politics, but in the sense of conserving the values that were part of your upbringing uh, and how that has changed specific to uh, the last 30 years. I think that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, Dagenham was very much a working class place. Um, it was built on 
social solidarity. It was built on community. It was built on a common cultural understanding. It was built on those bonds of association that are so important, I think, to, to communities. And it was it was a working class community, but it was never a poor community. There was always, you know, good sources of employment. The the Ford factory, uh, which is quite iconic, um, which existed in Dagenham at the time, um, and of course the famous film Made in Dagenham, which uh, which centred around the the Ford factory in Dagenham, um, and a traditional working class blue collar community. I grew up on a place called the Beckentry Estate, which was built in the nineteen thirties. Uh, and once upon a time was actually the biggest municipal housing estate on the planet, believe it or not. Um, and many, many people moved to the estate in the 1930s. It was built to accommodate the overspill from the east end of London. There were lots of slum clearances taking place in the east end of London in the 1930s. So both sets of my grandparents moved to, to Dagenham in the 1930s. Um, and there was just, as I said, that real sense of social solidarity where people felt a common understanding, a common kinship with their neighbours and with their friends. Uh, and it was a steady solid, stable, working-class community. Uh, and, you know, as I say in the book, formed very much my opinions and my outlook uh, on politics and in life generally. And much of what I articulate today was was drawn from having that background, really. Uh, and yeah, around, and this was in many respects, my motivation for, for writing the book, the very kind of sudden and dramatic changes that took place uh, in Dagenham around really from the, the turn of the turn of this century uh, and the emergence of the new global market and the impact of globalization both economically and socially and culturally uh, on the communities and on, on Dagenham as a community and in fact many working class communities in in Britain uh, and the sense of disorientation and bewilderment that that caused to working class communities and that steadiness and stability that I spoke about and that sense of social solidarity which were the pillars on which the community was built suddenly ruptured uh, and ruptured in a way that politicians including politicians in the Labour Party who was supposed to speak for these communities just didn't understand and didn't appreciate uh, and when people in those communities like Dagenham voiced any sort of concerns over what was happening uh, were treated really with contempt. Uh, and that's why we see the Labour Party now so disconnected from ordinary working class voters. And so I, I felt really, having gone through that experience, that there was a story to be told uh, and I decided to tell it. Well, and you even said in your book that you said to some of your friends, someone really ought to write a book about this. <laughs> They're like, well, maybe you should. <laughs> Hence the book, right? And that's how it happened. And is there, obviously, you, you talked about Brexit pretty quickly on into the book, specific to the Labour Party's kind of revolt uh, on that. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because you thought that was maybe a cultural turn specific to them getting their voice and and then being called bigots and again, once again, criticized for their beliefs specific to conserving their family values and what they grew up with and what they thought was uh, necessary specific to a society and a culture that works with one another. 
Yeah, I mean, Brexit was brewing for years, actually. There, there was always going to be a backlash of working class people in Britain. I could see it coming because of my experiences in Dagenham and people I was speaking to, people who by and large were traditional Labour supporters, but felt that their party had abandoned them. Um, and in many cases, just abstained in general elections or were drawn to more populist parties on the right. Uh, and we didn't necessarily know at that time that Brexit was going to be the event, the mechanism um, that allowed them to kick back at the system. It just so happened that it was. And in many respects, uh, Brexit wasn't particularly a strongly anti-European Union vote. I mean, it's certainly true that many people, including many working class people, didn't particularly like the European Union. They felt it was undemocratic. They felt it was meddling. Um, they felt it was distant from their lives and from their communities. But nonetheless, it was as much, the, the vote for Brexit in 2016 was as much an anti-UK establishment vote as it was an anti-EU vote. And what I mean by that is simply because people were looking for a way to kick back at the establishment. They mm -hmm. felt the communities that, that had voted for Brexit, which was this unusual alliance in many respect, respects between traditional working class Labour voters in what you might call blue collar, small town, post-industrial Britain and conservative, more traditionally minded conservative party voters beyond the cities. So in what we call the shires, the counties of England, more middle class voters with small c conservative attitudes. And it was almost like those two groups came together in an un unintended alliance. Both of them felt that actually their, their, their respective parties no longer spoke for them, didn't really share their priorities and actively looked down on them and didn't really understand their small c conservative opinions. And I've written about this from the Labour Party's perspective, because that's the part of politics I know most. And there's, there's always been a small c conservative thread running through working class communities, including Labour communities. Uh, they're people who wouldn't necessarily normally have considered voting for the Conservative Party. Uh, lots of people saw the Conservative Party, the Tories, as their as their class enemies, but they had a small c Conservative thread in the sense that they believed in the importance of uh, family, they believed in community, they understood the need for social solidarity, um, they were proudly patriotic, they liked the idea of the nation-state. And these were all concepts, really, family, community, nation, that increasingly the Labour Party had moved away from. And the Labour Party had, I, I traced it to, to about 30 years ago, um, when it stopped being, in my view, a proudly working class uh, party and started to become much more of a middle class, liberal, hyper progressive party uh, for the professional and managerial classes, really, and was populated increasingly by people living in our fashionable cities and university towns, people who had been to university and, you know, and, and more than the average working class person would earn and have very much a different outlook on life. Um, and my view has always been that the Labour Party was almost was always rather at its most successful when it has held together a coalition between that more blue collar working class element and a layer of more middle class liberals uh, who it needed to attract in order to 
win elections. I've never argued that the Labour Party can win elections just on the blue collar vote alone. But the party always understood that that co- the greater part of that coalition was always its traditional base, was always that working class element. And increasingly over, over the last 30 years, uh, it has abandoned that working class element. That element has been hollowed out of the party. And as the party itself has transformed into what I say now is a party really for social activists and student radicals and middle class liberals, so the working class moved away from it. And particularly since the turn of this century, as I said at the start of the interview, the emergence of the new global market, mm-hmm. uh, the effects of globalisation, uh, the, the middle class liberal graduate element in the Labour Party telling working class communities, this is great, this cosmopolitan liberalism, this is wonderful, it's going to enrich you financially, we'll have increased GDP and it'll enrich you culturally and spiritually and in every other way. Um, And increasingly working class communities listened to this and thought, well, that's not what's happening. I don't feel enriched by what's going on. I feel very disorientated by it, actually, and you guys are not listening to me. So all of that, that process, that that process of the Labour Party transforming itself, that process of the Labour Party looking down and sneering on small C conservative values, uh, that was brewing and brewing inside the working class movement, that 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 anger and that sense of alienation and and it spilled over into brexit it spilled over where working class people said it's not just the labor party not listening to us it's actually the conservative party as well it's the entire political establishment there you go deal with that we've just voted to leave the european union this is a mess of your making now now pick it up and deal with it clean it up that's the that's the that's the backdrop really to to brexit joe and if memory serves, it was almost 70% of your hometown voted to leave, correct? Yeah, a very, very significant number. And and actually, when you look at the when you look at the figures, Brexit was very much a working class vote. It was it was yeah. particularly the English working class actually uh, who pushed Brexit over the line. Uh, and and the, the many millions of people who voted for Brexit who who lived in you know working class blue collar post industrial England who felt left behind by globalization. They had had by that point in time, something like eight years of austerity economics. Um, they'd seen the impacts of the global market in terms of the, you know, economically, locally, in terms of the, the deindustrialization, the serious deindustrialization that had taken place, the loss of many thousands of blue-collar jobs in solid industries which had disappeared overseas, the rise of the what we the gig economy and insecure Mm -hmm. transient employment and at the same time the very rapid and deep-seated kind of social and and cultural changes that were taking place as a result of of free movement um, which is an EU uh, thing of course free movement and all you know these communities felt in felt in the eye of a storm really when all of these economic and social changes were taking place um and that's why, yes, places places like Dagman voted so heavily for for Brexit. It was a, I, I describe it really as it was almost as if people in these communities felt that they they'd been given a gun with one bullet, and they they were told they had the opportunity to to fire it at their political masters and to have an impact <laughs> in a way that they would 
never having a general election because they'd vote in a general election, but the parties had increasingly converged on the same ground. They didn't really feel that they were able to influence the the outcome of the election or the country, the direction of the country. Uh, And all of a sudden, in a binary referendum, where pretty much the whole ranks of the establishment largely were lining up and saying, you must vote this way because otherwise it's going to be terrible. It's, It's going to be floods and pestilence. And they suddenly thought, well, Actually, you are the people, you know, the politicians, the banking industry, big business, you are the people who are responsible for my predicament. You are the people who have ignored me over the last 10, 15, 20 years. I don't have much economic interest in in this country at the moment anyway, because I, I, I don't earn a very good wage. I don't have anything to sell but my own labour power. Why should I worry about any economic fallout? You know, I, I, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to take this opportunity you've given to me, uh, and that's that's what they did, and that's why they did it. And I do apologise, my blind no, no eye phone is starting to <laughs> that's stuff happens. I'm hoping a member of the family picks it up any second. I do apologise. It's okay. They have done. Um, they have done. Good. No, I mean the, the parallels again are staggering. So, you know, that bullet analogy is astute because they had the one single bullet in the chamber and they could fire at the establishment. And they did. We did that here in America in 2016 with Donald Trump. So, you know, most of my friends from my upbringing in Minnesota, and I don't know if this stands true with your your friends and relatives, but they're, most of my friends and relatives are very religious people. I grew up Catholic. I think it was my mom's favorite day ever when I was confirmed Catholic and maybe her least favorite day ever when she found out I didn't go to church anymore. But <laughs> Very, very religious people. And small C conservatives, how I describe them, and I have described them for many years. And the same thing stands true with my high school buddies. And because I didn't grow up with money, uh, my a lot of my friends didn't either. So we hung out, you know, and, and had a wonderful childhood. And, and most of their parents were middle managers and laborers and truck drivers. And on the upside, you know, p- policemen and firemen. And so I kind of grew up with these these amazing people. And then I went into the business world. And I lived in San Francisco where I live today and I spent years in New York City and I was in the advertising world. And so my whole circle changed and all of the people that I hung out with for the last 20 plus years are very liberal. Uh, most of them went to the best schools in the world, you know, and they, they have very good jobs and they have very good incomes and they have very different lifestyle. And to your point, um, they also kind of looked down you know, on, on the folks that I grew up with, myself included at the point, you know, I would start to get irritated with some of the, the religious rhetoric or things that I thought were old school. And, uh, you know, I've, I've changed my mind as I've gotten older, but I think that what took place with Donald Trump, and to be clear, I think Donald Trump is the most dangerous human being in politics today, but I understand why my friends and relatives voted for him. And when I went back to Minnesota to visit my mother in the summer of 2016, the neighborhood I grew up in, which was full of educated people, uh, they were not bigots, they were not racists, and they had Trump signs in the front yard. And I came back to San Francisco and I told my buddies, I'm like, Trump's going to win, guys. You know, and they're like, oh, no, you're no, it's crazy. And I thought it was crazy. I thought, you know, he's a he's a buffoon by all standards of measurement and in the business world in New York city, we all thought he was a buffoon and just hilarious. And we didn't really pay much attention to him, but then we're like, okay, this guy wins. This is going to be a problem. And it was, and that was a big piece of where our liberal party, we had the slogan here because a lot of us like Bernie Sanders and Bernie Sanders is a 
democratic socialist who does pay attention to working class folks. And he does love, uh, I think, the old school uh, democratic norms. And so for me personally, he was my favorite candidate. And then we, the DNC here, uh, kind of pushed him out and moved Hillary into the big slot, which is also a huge problem for our electorate. And there was a Bernie or bus slogan that got very popular. And we are not voting for Hillary because she's exactly what we don't want. You know, she's part of the establishment. She doesn't care about us, the working class, the people. And obviously the rest is history, right? It, this is what bus looks like. I say that to my friends now, and it's really sad. But I think the fact that we did forget how this works, it's, it's become our party here. And I guess this is where we can get to next. You have in your book, we now have, and this is in Britain, have a national religion called liberal wokedom. And you also say there's a chance, of course, that labor has lost forever much of its one-time core vote. That's why it would be a fatal error for the party to assume that things cannot get worse. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's, it's one of those things where you have here too, old-fashioned concepts such as patriotism, self-discipline, religious beliefs, marriage, centrality of family, manners, respect for tradition, conserving these traditions, that's conservatives here, personal morality and a belief in free will were being rejected wholesale. And a lot of that same stuff is taking place here. You know, with our, we have the word woke, just like everyone else does. It is now a pejorative more so than it was its original format, which was, you know, awakening to other things and seeing things in a liberal stance. Now it is also taking over our whole culture specific to, you know, identity politics and things that you talk about in your book. It's almost like now the liberal establishment on, on issues that are disputed across the wider country, or at least still contentious, not settled throughout the wider country. The liberal establishment in its own mind has belie believes that these issues are now settled. There's an orthodoxy, there's a conventional wisdom. And if you don't subscribe to it, then that must be some sort of moral failing on your part. And if you don't subscribe to the conventional wisdom and you have any sort of position in public life, you're a manager in our public services, you're a politician, you're a celebrity of some kind, you're an industry leader, mm -hmm. um, then actually you'll be cancelled. You know, your reputation will be tarnished and will destroy your livelihood. That's the kind of culture that has, has crept in as a result of, as you said, this new national religion, as I describe it. and. There's now almost no longer a debate on some things. It, it, people will claim offence if you put an alternative view, almost as if that itself is a clincher in the debate. The moment somebody has said, I'm offended by your view, then it's almost as if the debate should go no further. And whereas once upon a time we would say, I disagree with you, and here are the reasons why I disagree right. with you. Now, if you don't subscribe to the orthodoxy, then you're in you're in serious trouble. And my my assessment, really, Joey, I suspect it's probably the same in the states to a certain degree. Is there was a huge body of public opinion in our country for many many years who were to the left on economic issues. So they wanted a fairer economy. They wanted a, a smaller gap between rich and poor. They wanted reindustrialization. They wanted regeneration of our disadvantaged areas. They didn't like boardroom excesses and regional inequalities. They wanted a higher minimum wage, stronger trade union rights, well-funded public services, and so on. 
but were, if you like, to the right on some of the cultural issues. They were traditionalists. They did believe in family. They did believe in community. They loved their country. They took a robust line on things like law and order and national security. Um, and for years, these people just had no one to speak for them because the political establishment, particularly the Labour Party, but not just the Labour Party, the Conservatives too, um, just took this hyper-progressive liberal line on everything. Uh, and really, it was that body of public opinion, as I said, that that drove the Brexit vote. Um, and then when the Conservative Party began to understand it, and said, okay, we'll get Brexit done. And yes, we do need to level up and we do need to invest in our disadvantaged communities. And we're going to focus on that more than the Labour Party does. And yes, we don't particularly like the woke agenda. All of a sudden, millions of votes from working class communities started going towards the Conservative Party. Now, I'm not a Conservative Party person. I don't think they're going to deliver for working class people. I'm on the left, but I understand why people felt it was necessary to, to cast their vote that way. And it's it's that whole it's that whole uh, climate that's been created in our country of there's an orthodox view, you subscribe to it. If you don't, then we're going to cancel you. Uh, and that yeah. is what that's what people have reacted against, that new national religion. They didn't like it. It was peddled by the political and media classes in this country and the liberal establishment, and people reacted against it. Yeah, that's happening here on a couple fronts. As I mentioned earlier off camera, you know, True 30 is relatively new, but our first reporting was we dove into the defund the police narrative, which was launched after the murder of George Floyd, which was tragic on every front. The problem with the progressives narrative, and as an ad guy, I was offended by defund the police because it's actually not what they wanted to even happen. <laughs> so it was just the words were the wrong thing to start with. But once we got past the actual vernacular, it was there were social progressives here in the United States who I interviewed on camera who actually wanted to abolish the police in its entirety and start from scratch based on the fact that the police department's origins were based in oppression and slavery, which is true. Right. That was the original idea of police forces to go out, round up slaves. And it was awful and terrible. But when I asked them questions specific to, all right, well, what's your remedy? Right. If if you really want to abolish, you know, in the United States, we have a million uniformed police officers, we have 18,000 police departments. Kind of hard to just raise that to the ground and say, we're going to have community organizations take care of this and we're going to be fine. And when you actually start to press on these issues, the Social Democrats who I interviewed, wonderful people, by the way, um, said things like, well, we need more cameras, body cameras, so that we can hold them accountable. We want more PTSD training or, or therapy. We need more psychologists involved in the mix. We need more uh, mental health services for all of these folks. And we need de-escalation training. We need all of these things. And I'm taking contemporaneous notes. And I'm like, this is, this is sound advice. Fast forward, I'm interviewing, you know, beat cops, I talked to leadership. I got to the chief of police here at a local department. Uh, he oversees about 250 people in his group. And he basically shared the same thing. I said, sir, what if you had your druthers, what would you do? He said, well, if we had the budget, we'd have more body cameras. We'd have more de-escalation training. We'd have more mental health services. And you know, the last interview I had with his name was uh, chief of police, Captain Cregan at the time. He shared with me that the new budgets that they're now part of, because of a lot of this swell, which is the good side of this progressive uh, movement, 
is that they now do have something called in-response teams. And the in-response teams are non-police officers. They have a paramedic, a homeless advocate, someone who's actually been homeless, overcome that so they can relate. And then they have a a, a trained uh, therapist clinician with 3,000 hours of of work uh, to be mandated. So these people go out in a nondescript truck to mental health calls specific to psychotic breaks and, you know, arguments and, and things that kind of fall under the umbrella of mental health. And what was really unique about this was that he shared the data with me and his department had 255,000 calls into dispatch every month. 137,000 of those calls were use of send out police to, to the scene. So called the service. And then the actual, there was 235 use of force characteristics. And most of that had to do with mental health. And so he said, if we can actually implement this mental health unit, the in-response team that they now have in beta, is that our goal is to take 25% of calls into dispatch and give them to these units, because that's the best source for our public. It's the best source for everything else. And so what was really unique about that was that it wasn't the far, the far left narrative that worked. We didn't, we didn't want to abolish them. We needed to fix it. And then the same thing happened with critical race theory here in the United States. I don't know if you guys have had that debate, but Mm. it's a big thing specific to my small C conservative friends and neighbors in that they do understand that there's racism. That's not an issue. Uh, I think that Kimberly, Kimberly, uh, and well, yeah, all of the people that wrote the critical race theory and Richard Delgado and, and, uh, yeah, Kimberly Crenshaw and all these wonderful thinkers at the academic level. So at the academy level, they said, hey, this is what critical race theory means. It's a, it's an idea, it's an actual theory based on how our culture has been orchestrated. And here's kind of how we've fallen into these things and we need to remedy these things, which was all very valid. And so part of what happened in our culture is that in our body politic, the right started to say, well, you're teaching critical race theory to our kids. And we know that that's just categorically false because it's a graduate level program and a law school program. It's not something you teach to eight-year-olds. But what was happening was underneath that, um, Kimberly Crenshaw actually coined the phrase intersectionality. And that's where you have a map. If you're white, you're in this category. If you're Asian, you're, you're adjacent white. So you don't get that. But if black, you have this. If you're Hispanic, you have this. If you're trans, you have this. And depending on how that works. And so they were actually teaching some level of this to eight, nine, 10 year olds specific to intersectionality. And I interviewed a black female liberal educator in Houston, Texas, because they're actually teaching this there. And so I asked her, I said, is this happening? Are they teaching critical race theory to students? And she said, no, not critical race theory in the sense, but we do have to, we are asked to teach intersectionality. Specifically, she said, I remember one case where I had a white father who was married to a black woman and they have mixed race kids. And so me teaching this, that your father comes from the oppressor class and your mother is oppressed, she said actually further complicates the identity of these children. And she said, so that's what the the Republicans are mad about. And I was like, all right, there we go. So it took me, you know, a couple hundred hours of research to figure out, okay, so we're all talking over each other. Same thing that happened to defund the police is happening with critical race theory. There's, we agree on a lot of it, but we fight because we get tribal. And then to your point, it's now becoming verboten to even talk about these subjects without being called. Now, you've been called a lot of names <laughs> recently because of your book. And then you also touched on something 
specific to what we're dealing with now in identity politics is the transgender discussion. And you said that that is one of the most contentious discussions in Britain as well. And it's brutal here because as you know, I've interviewed Helen Joyce and Julie Bindle and Lucy Massoud on this subject, uh, all as authors and people in the gay community who are actually trans activists who are now being called TERFs, which is trans exclusionary radical feminists and racists and homophobes, because they actually believe that there's a differentiation between a trans woman and a biological woman, not to be mean spirited. They're just like, there's a difference. And you actually have in here somewhere that the word woman, and I'm quoting you badly now, but it's they, we can no longer define what the word means. And that, that itself is a problem. And I think that's the logical conclusion of the arguments made by people on, you know, what I call the militant trans side of the debate, that actually when you examine what their demands are, when you take their argument and their demands to their logical conclusion, then effectively it does mean that the, the word woman has no objective meaning. It has no meaning rooted in, in science or fact. It simply becomes uh, a feeling. It simply becomes something that's right. entirely subjective. And, you know, I've, I've had these debates with people where I've said to them, okay, you know, what is your definition of the word woman? If you believe what you believe, um, what does woman mean? And, and they get themselves into all sorts of tangles and usually end up either contradicting themselves or trying to, to avoid the question altogether. Um, and I've looked at this debate as it's taken place in, in Britain. And I look at the, you know, people like Julie and Lucy and other people who you've mentioned, people who have been on the right side of arguments around equality and fairness and justice all of yeah. their lives. And yes. have marched and demonstrated uh, in favour of underrepresented uh, oppressed groups are suddenly being painted as these wicked, terrible bigots and reactionaries. And you think, well, that can't be true. These people haven't suddenly turned into this thing that people are claiming they are. What they're doing is, first of all, respecting basic biology, and secondly, arguing for women's sex-based rights. Uh, and it seems to me that there are people on the left who are prepared to completely unpick all of the advances that have been made by women and feminists over recent years in terms of fighting for equality, in terms of fighting for security and dignity and in public places and private spaces in the workplace and so on, uh, and are prepared to see all of that rolled back because of the, the demands of a tiny number of people. Now, I'm a great believer that people should be free to live their lives within the law. And, you know, if, if you are somebody, if you're a, a man who wants to wear a dress, um, if you're a woman who wants to wear clothing that's usually associated with men, then absolutely good luck to you. And I would be the first person to, to defend you against any sort of bullying or harassment. But what I'm not prepared to accept is that laws should be changed and that language should be changed, and the culture and custom of everything we have known as a society since time immemorial should change, uh, simply to accommodate the, the wishes 
in many respects, the deeply unreasonable wishes of a of a tiny number of people. And do you know what, Jay? The thing is, and and actually, this goes back to to the first part of your contribution about you know the whole issue of of racism and and how actually we agree on much more than sometimes people realise. The, the thing is that people in our country, I'm sure it's true in the, the, the States, the vast majority of people are actually tolerant people. I mean, in Britain, we mm-hmm. we beat ourselves up and the media beat us up and the political establishment beats us up all the time by claiming we're some kind of backward, benighted, intolerant country. All of the evidence shows, actually, that the vast majority of people are, are perfectly tolerant in our country. You know, studies have been carried out. The vast majority of people would have no objection to living next door to a person of colour. They would have no objection um, to to their daughter marrying a person of colour, living next door to someone of the Muslim faith. On stuff like that, we have advanced magnificently over recent years. So the depiction of our country, uh, you know, really angers me when when we're, we're made out to be some sort of intolerant and backward country because we're, ne- we're really not that. And I think on this trans issue as well, most people would take the view that, that I just espoused that actually, you know, if you want to live your life like that, then, then good luck to you. But they draw the line when the demands become unreasonable. Uh, and when everything we've, we've ever known in the way of, you know, science and biology and language and, and culture uh, is is changed, is changed about us because because of these demands from an unreasonable minority. And I've been staggered and, and angered at the way that some really good people on the left in our country, good women on the left who have fought the good fight over many years against oppression and prejudice are suddenly being depicted in this way. And I'm also angered by the level of cowardice actually in public life where I've had lots of people will come up to me and say, yeah, of course you're right. Of course you're, of course this stuff is nonsense, you know, and they, these people need to put their head above the parapet themselves because unless people in public life are prepared to say, actually, we are going to stand up against this bullying. We are going to stand up Mm -hmm. Uh, against this uh, attempt to subvert scientific reality, uh, then then it's less likely that we're going to be able to push back against it. So that's a battle that really needs to be won. I agree. And I think that's part of what my homework brought to the fore is that, you know, someone like Lucy, who was your colleague and, and former firefighter herself, who's now a barrister, was on the front lines to represent trans people within the fire department so that they got extra vacation time or didn't have to take their vacation time for their treatments and their surgeries. So this was someone who has lobbied on behalf of the trans population and done so for years, to your point. Julie Bindle for four decades, Helen Joyce, four decades. As a feminist, these women, by the way, even the discussions I have here in the United States are not considered feminists by the younger feminists. They're still called TERFs. And what Lucy helped me understand is that I think London is called Turf Island. <laughs> and so if you look at all of the women, and they're, they're kind of taking that term as a, as a badge of honor today, based on the fact that because they are feminists and they have fought for the delineation of women to the patriarchy and women's liberation specifically, everything from birth control to abortion to uh, equal pay to you know all the things that they've been lobbying for for decades are now no longer acceptable because of this one issue. And Lucy actually shared a story where as a lesbian, she was banned from Hinge because she said in her profile that she would like, she doesn't like it when people are late. So it was like, give us the three things that would make us want to, you know, 
date and I don't make fun of my favorite movie and please be a biological female. And that's one of those things where you're like, that sounds reasonable. You know, you're a lesbian, which by definition means you're not a big fan of a penis. So I think we could construct that. Yeah, it's probably a fair statement. She was banned permanently from the site and never got follow-up from the company. And I actually heard this too in the United States and I've read this in the literature and my brother, who's an attorney said to me, well, don't talk in abstracts. Otherwise you just get disqualified and you look stupid. I was like, all right. So when I talked to Lucy, I'm like, that's not abstract anymore. That's an actual personal account of what took place. And that's an example too, where she's called, and Julie too, who's lesbian is called homophobe because she lobbies against this. And she says, I, you know, I don't even know what to say at that point. And she's been physically attacked and called these horrible names. And there's hundreds of young feminists, heavy quotes, out front of the universities saying that her presence there is violence. And that's another thing we can get into because this is driving me nuts. You actually talked about safe spaces at universities in London. Why don't we talk a little bit about that nonsense? <laughs> because originally I interviewed two professors here, one at Berkeley, which is a very liberal university, and then another Jesuit university here. And I wanted to get their take as professors. And what they did help me understand is that originally there were things specific to LGBT or black or some marginalized communities that couldn't find a, a group to, to help talk these things through. And I'm like, all right, I'll give you that. But then it kind of graduated to ideological and emotional harm. And here in the United States, they actually have places, Brown University being the most egregious example, has milk and cookies and soft music and coloring books and crayons. And these are for 18 to 22 year olds. So, I mean, I don't understand this is eight to 12 year olds. You're like, all right, you need to say, <laughs> but these are adults. And so what does your safe space look like in Britain? And because you mentioned it in your book, what, what does that look like? And, and how do you think on that front? Well, the, our educational establishments now, and I, I never went to university, but I've, I've seen and read enough in recent years to, to know what's been taking shape. Um, and not just actually our universities, but our, our colleges and our, our schools are increasingly becoming places that that peddle a particular orthodoxy where they will encourage uh, encourage every sort of diversity apart from diversity of thought and diversity right. of expression um so all other diversities are great but diversity of opinion is is not so good and as a result of that you have an awful lot of groupthink um you do literally have as you said, safe spaces in universities, you know, the door which actually says safe space. Yeah. And, and as a result, they've effectively become echo chambers. Now, the real worrying thing about that is my understanding of the university is that actually these places should be cauldrons of debate. They should be yes. hotbeds hot of opinion and divergence yes. of view and robust debate and argument, not only because it's right in principle, of course, that people should be free to, to articulate their view, but actually if you were a student at a university, I would think that you would want to be exposed to the widest range of views because you're there to, to learn and you're there to get the broadest possible education. And actually, if you do believe in something, then I think it's it's a good thing to be exposed to an alternative view because that challenges your thinking and actually allow, allows you to fine-tune your own arguments, allows you yeah. to publish your own arguments. Um and teaches you resilience because when you go out there into the big white world, you'll discover that actually 
life isn't particularly easy and you do have to, to to fight for your space sometimes and you do have to fight for your own advancement and if you've been constantly cosseted where you've never been challenged and you've been embedded in this culture of safetyism where you you're just you know wrapped in cotton wool the whole time then actually you're not going to be best placed to, to to deal with those challenges when they come along in future um, and so that's that's kind of where where we are, and and you see it not just in educational uh, establishments, you see it right throughout business and, and commerce now mm-hmm. in, in Britain. I mean, you you will have, as I said before, you will have a conventional wisdom, uh, and often that conventional wisdom will be around a particular thing like the trans issue, for example, like the issue of pronouns, which out there in the wider country are much contested. And actually many millions of people resist and say, well, actually, I don't agree with that nonsense. What has been um, staggering really in Britain is the degree to which our educational establishments and our big businesses have just completely embraced this stuff and then peddled it, regurgitated it, almost as if the whole country agrees with them, almost as if it's non-contentious. And that has helped to build this kind of, of, of culture of this stifling, suffocating culture where there is this orthodoxy that mustn't be challenged. Um, and it's it's actually frightening. It's frightening to think that, that that has taken hold so quickly and that it could get worse. Yeah, I, I think the same thing stands true here. I just didn't get it. I just didn't get it because I even asked one of the professors um, who's very liberal and I said, so if you agree that safe spaces are necessary, which he did, I said, do you think the next progression then is safe spaces at corporation? And his answer was immediate. Yes. <laughs> like, wow. Okay. So I have now I'm lost because at this point, where do you grow up? Where oh. you actually have to deal with opinions. And by the way, they should, they're abhorrent opinions that are going to be thrown out at campuses. And it doesn't matter how bad the idea is. You need to fight that. That's part of it. Right. That's where you you want these people to be out. There's a guy named Ben Shapiro here in the United States. He's very conservative, pushes everything very far to the right. But from all my homework on this young man, which had spent six months and hundreds of hours of study, I just went to his event in Nashville last week. It's called the Daily Wire at the Ryman Theater. They had 3,000 attendees there. It was like a rock concert. This, This group of people just loves the Daily Wire. A lot of small C conservatives, by the way. And they go off on this and they use this as a cudgel for votes and they're winning. That's a big piece of what's really scaring me now is that the right here is using critical race theory, defund the police and trans ideology as further division in the parties. And when, to your point, if you don't want to use a pronoun because you really don't understand it, you know, a lot of my family, as I've talked to, doesn't understand this. And it's not that they're mean-spirited. It's just like, I don't understand why we're having this debate. I don't, if someone wants to wear a dress, if someone wants to be, you know, different, that's great. But asking us to change our vernacular, you know, they're even pushing the narrative so far that mother is a word that they want to alter. And that's an example where, okay, that's way too far. I don't care where you sit. I'm a liberal and I'm like, I will call you whatever pronoun you want. I'll do it just out of courtesy because I don't want to hurt people's feelings. Specifically, if you're going through all this turmoil internally, the last thing I want to do is fuck that up. But when you say I have to use birthing person as a vernacular, I, that's what's like, no, no, I, I'm not going to do that. That's ludicrous. 
Mother, Mother Earth starts with. I mean, it's just, it's, you can't take mother away. And that's where, for me, the left here is going, and again, it's a minoritarian base. It's about 8% of our population at that demographic, but they're very vocal. They're very powerful. They use social media as a weapon and they are in concert. They believe the same mantras, you know, trans women are women. If you don't believe that, you're a bad person, you're a bad moral person, you're bad, we're gonna dox you, we're gonna try to get you fired. You know, we're calling you turf, all the names. I get called all these names now because I interviewed Helen and I interviewed Julie and I interviewed Lucy and, and people are like, you're a turf. And I'm like, well, I'm not cool. <laughs> Whatever you wanna call me, I'm, I'm over that. But for me, the bigger picture is that we are gonna lose the House and the Senate in the midterm no in November here in the United States. And part and parcel is what we're talking about, is that the left has pushed this narrative so far on the progressive side that independents, moderates, small C conservatives who may have wanted to vote with the Democratic Party because they're actually, much like I am, they're very scared of Donald Trump and they're scared of his followers. I mean, not, not the voters, but the actual people in his circle uh, who now believe what he believes. And we have over a hundred candidates running now who for Congress and the Senate who are touting that the election of 2020 was stolen. And they're not saying this behind closed doors. This is part of their campaign speech. They're out, on, they're out talking about this. And that is an example of what's going on, you know, with our body politic and us on the left are pushing on these narratives and doubling down on them, even as we see that it's not working. And the Labor Party, to your point, in 2019 had the biggest loss that it's ever had since 1935, right? And have they changed any of their behavior? They, on that? You, you're absolutely right. It was, it was an annihilation for the Labour Party in 2019 for, for all of the reasons that, that we've been speaking about. And there are some people within the Labour Party who are very slowly understanding it and very slowly understanding why what happened happened that actually yeah. we did as a party alienate millions of our traditional voters we did sneer at them we did mm -hmm. treat their small c conservative values with contempt we did try to force them down this road to to you know cosmopolitan liberalism we did try to peddle the philosophy of open borders. We did try to tell them that the new global market was going to work to their advantage. We did call them racist and bigoted yeah. uh, when they decided actually they did value social solidarity. They didn't particularly like huge economic and social change taking place in their communities very, very quickly. Um, we do have to understand, you know, that, that many working class people are patriotic. They do believe in the family. They do believe in the nation state. All of these things that we thought were old hat and we've tried to, to dismiss. The difficulty is not enough from a Labour Party perspective, not enough people in the Labour Party have got that message. They think that the reason the Labour Party was beaten so heavily in 2019 was either because of the Brexit issue, it was still very much a legacy in that election, and the Labour Party had gone down this road of calling for a second referendum, which really angered all of those working that class sure people. Did. They effectively went to people and said, you got it wrong, you're going to have to do it again. And that right. really, really angered those communities. Or they said that 
you know, it was because the media were horrible to Jeremy Corbyn, who was, a, who was the leader at the time. He came from the far left. He wasn't popular on the doorstep. Uh, so really, and I think actually they've probably, some of them, I think, have looked at the Biden victory in America and have thought, well, actually the Dems still still managed to pull off a win. Therefore, we probably don't have to change much either in, in the Labour Party. I think that would be suicidal. I think that the leader, Keir Starmer, probably has begun to understand some of this stuff. He doesn't, I think, get it instinctively. He comes from very much of the similar background to Tony Blair. He's a kind of a middle-class London liberal lawyer. Um, but has started to understand what is necessary to connect with the Red Wall, as it's called in, in Britain, which was traditionally the, the Labour Party heartlands in this country. The difficulty is that he's shackled by a party, um, which has got two dominant elements at the moment. It's got the liberal left and it's got the radical left. So the, uh, the, the liberal left kind of built in the image of Tony Blair, really, very much sort of centrist, progressive yeah. party, very pro-EU, pro-open borders, that kind of thing. Um, and the, the radical left, much more the kind of harder left um, and immersed in this kind of identity politics. Uh, and neither of them points to salvation for the Labour Party. And, and that traditional working class patriotic element of the Labour Party, that used to be quite a significant part of it. And the Labour Party was very happy to have within its ranks has, has almost disappeared, really. So to answer the question, I mean, I... I I don't think the Labour Party broadly still understands what it needs to do uh, in order to win power again. I think some people in the party are hoping, I mean, the Conservative Party seems to be imploding at the moment. You would have seen that Boris Johnson resigned today as the leader of the, the Conservative Party and, and will go as Prime Minister very shortly. Um, but you're not going to win an election just because the current government is unpopular. You need to, to, to show people that you can be entrusted with government and that you understand their priorities and, and their language. But the Labour Party needs fundamental reform. It needs to undergo a fundamental transformation. Uh, and it's only it's only just embarked on that path, frankly. So there's a long, long way to go. You have that. That's your last chapter, right? And I I can't, I have too many notes here, but I think it was something in effect, what can be done, right? What needs to be done in the Labour Party? And and we talked about the wipeout. I just gushed about the same thing, right? I'm terrified at what's going on with our party because we are focused. We're listening to the minoritarian progressives on our side. And there's so many more folks in the liberal, moderate, independent, and even left center, a right center on the small C conservative side that could take any of these candidates and have, you know, have some success, but we're just doubling down. And after we lose the House and the Senate in November, President Biden's not going to have any power. There's no way he can get anything done. And so that's going to be a bigger problem. And if we don't then learn from that 2024, you know, there's rumor around the campfire that Donald Trump is going to run again in 2024. And if he does, there's a very good chance that he'll win. And if that happens, I fear that our democracy, as we know it, this experiment that's 246 years old is over, right? We will lose what we have as a democracy. And I think that that's, when you talk about your Labour Party, you mentioned that, you know, there's a couple of things that they need to stop doing. You actually say, and I'm quoting here, they, the Progressive Party in Britain, must stop hating large sections of the nation's working class. That's not hyperbole. I state it as a fact drawn from personal experience that many in the party 
are contemptuous of the values and priorities of the working class people and often the individuals themselves. Until that changes, labor is finished with the working class communities. So what, what do you have in your, in your quiver? What, what do you think they can do, not only the Labor Party in Britain, but just, I would say, liberals as a whole? What can we do better <laughs> to connect with the people that will vote for their betterment? Because I don't, I, much like you, I don't, the conservative, you know, the Tories over there are not going to do anything for the working man. And I don't believe for a second that the GOP cares about the working class here either. So like, what does that look like to you? You've done a lot of homework on this. I think they need to, first of all, understand uh, that they aren't the only morally virtuous, worthy group within society. They're so filled sometimes with their own moral rectitude that anybody who doesn't subscribe to their own worldview, they see as somehow inferior. They see themselves as guardians of the enlightenment. And if people don't share uh, their their ideology, then most people need to be dragged out of their ignorance. And we've seen that so much in Britain, where even now the liberal establishment in this country cannot believe that working class people voted for Brexit. We constantly hear the argument, they voted against their own interests, they voted yeah. to make themselves poorer. Um, you know, this this was an act of self-harm. Uh, yeah. Even now, six years later, they don't understand what, what caused it. And, and partly, I think, really, because they had become so used to, to winning um, and they had become so used to society, government and much of the media um, acting according to the way they wanted them to act, governing in their interests. Uh, and suddenly when that stopped happening, they thought there must be there must be something wrong. And so they, they need to understand that actually, you know, they, they are not the only morally worthy people within society. And that they need to understand too, that as I touched on previously, there is this huge body of opinion in the country that, is fundamentally tolerant and decent, wants a fairer economy, uh, wants to see redistribution of wealth, wants to see economic justice, um, but actually is quite socially conservative in a, in a small sense, a small C sense, believes in patriotism, as I've said, believes in the family, believes in, in the nation, takes a robust line on some policy issues. That doesn't make those people morally inferior. And if you keep telling those people, like this huge group of people, that they are somehow morally inferior. If you do keep telling these people that they're racist, that they're bigoted, uh, that they're xenophobic, that they're intolerant, then these people, thank God, have still got the vote. And every now and then, they will hit back hard. And that's exactly what they did with Brexit. That's exactly what they did with the Labour Party uh, in 2019. Um, and what they can't necessarily achieve in terms of articulating their view through the media or through books or through the structures of political parties, they can achieve through going into the ballot box one day and just putting a cross next to a particular option on a ballot paper. And they've got the ability to rock the establishment in that way. So, so my message to, to the liberal class is, unless you 
start understanding. You don't have to agree with, I'm not saying you have to agree all the time. Of course you don't have to, but stop dismissing people, stop sneering at people, stop holding their traditional values in contempt, because if you do, you'll keep getting these shocks to the political system and you'll be responsible for it. You'll deserve it. Yeah, that's astute, Paul, because that's, that's, you know, it's the same thing here. I hear this from my family and my friends, specifically being called morally less than or bigots or racists because of their beliefs, specifically small C conservatives and religious people in general. So those are the things that are really frightening. I think one thing that really hit me, the importance of vocation was a section in your book. And again, I'm going to read this because it's just so well written. The concept of the dignity of labor, essentially that work brings dignity and all work, whether it be done by hand or brain, and workers are worthy of equal respect is the bedrock upon which all of its thinking and interventions around the economy and the world of work are established. This in turn should lead to a reassert the importance of vocational skills and education. Serious consideration must be given to converting several of our universities to vocational colleges, the better to address the skills gap, improve productivity, and reassert the value of skilled work. And that is a discussion I hear all the time in the Midwest. and my the, the people I grew up with here in Northern California, these are hardworking, you know, God-fearing folks, right? They just, they're good people. And, and, and I disagree with them on almost everything politically. So, you know, it was one of those things too, after Roe v. Wade, you know, my friends, uh, all, most of my best friends from the world of media at San Francisco, New York City, where I've spent most of my life, are just beside themselves right? And it's an attack on women's autonomy and, and, and privacy. And I, don't, I agree with all that because it's just where I sit. But the attack on these people as being terrible people and because they don't believe in abortion. And that's again, where the problem sits specifically with our body politic is that they are continuing to push these folks into the arms of the GOP because of the judgment, because of the trans discussion, because of the defund the police discussion, because the critical race theory discussion. And again, these are being wielded as weapons by a very, very astute GOP messaging team. They know how to use these to our advantage. And I think that that's again, where my favorite piece of your remedy was the concept and dignity of work. Because work is not about a paycheck for most of us. It's actually about doing something that you love and feeling good doing it. And you're a productive member of society. And everyone's gone through that. You talked about that at length in your book, specific to layoffs. And when people are laid off, they don't know what to do anymore. And it's not just a man thing. I mean, I think men suffer more because of our egos and because of being brought up that men provide, but women suffer too. It's not a matter of, you know, they feel good when they're unemployed. And I think that this vocation, this focus on vocation is something that, is a wonderful idea. Do you see, do you see that happening in in your old hometowns or or on the outskirts of London? Is there any progress in that area? I think two things. First of all, without serious reindustrialization of some of our post-industrial areas, uh, then it's always going to be a serious challenge um, to to kind of rehabilitate uh, that sentiment. Um, and unless our establishment in this country does start understanding, you know, the, the pride in work, the whole 
concept of pride in yeah. work, dignity of labour, then probably not. I mean, we we had generations of, of people, and it was mainly men historically in this country, who were you know, blue-collar workers or they had a particular trade and they were carpenters or they were electricians or they were bricklayers or whatever it was and yeah. would be proud to have that trade. And that trade was a... A source of pride and you know a good kind of source of steady income for them or they worked in good solid blue collar industries they had jobs in in factories and so on and again that instilled pride not just in self but pride in the community i saw that with the big yeah. food motor plant in my hometown of dagenham but over recent years and this was very much i have to say i think the tony blair thing when he was prime minister, where that kind of work, that blue-collar manual work, was suddenly looked upon as menial, suddenly looked upon as dirty. And Blair had had this crazy idea whereby he said that 50% of all young people should go to university. And what we saw in this country was an explosion in the number of universities, which previously hadn't been universities, but suddenly were, you know, were told they were universities and, and millions of kids were kind of crammed into these universities and often came out with, with no disrespect to the, to, to the youngsters themselves, but came out with pretty worthless degrees, which didn't really aid their future career advancement at all. And the, the, the correlation, of course, was that we had a, a serious shortage of people who were able to do that skilled manual labour, for example. We didn't have the builders, the bricklayers, the electricians, the plumbers that we had previously. And as a result of that, we're then suddenly reliant on, on a huge influx of foreign labour, cheaper imported labour, largely as a result of EU free movement. So we had a huge number of uh, people coming in from Eastern Europe, for example, who would carry out those jobs, who, who you know, great people and did fantastic work, no question about it. Um, but you know, as, as a result of that, helped to kind of suppress wages in those particular industries for, uh, for for British people who were already working in those industries, and it's just created this whole whole problem. So that that very concept of dignity of labour and the lack of respect for it, and the desire to to get every kid a degree, and we can just rely on cheap labour to fill the gap. Um, has, has been, I think, a source of shame, actually, for our country. It really has. And, and you know, that concept of dignity of labour, I think, needs to be front and centre. But I don't, to answer your question directly, I don't really see any sign that people get it. Yeah, unfortunately, we're kind of, you know, like I said in the beginning, there's so, the similarities between what's taking place in Britain and what's happening here in the United States are scary similar. It's yeah. not, it's just, and I think it's just, it talks to human nature. It talks to tribalism. It talks to the fact that, you know, evolutionary biology dictates that you want to be a member of a tribe and you want it. You don't want to go outside that. And if you go outside that purview, you know, it it's it rocks you. And I know that you've gone through it and, you know, you've been called the names. And I don't know if you've had the same physical and scary death threats that, you know, Julie and, and some of the others I've interviewed have. But if you have, I apologize <laughs> for humanity in that sense. But, I'm, well, I'm, I'm six foot two and 14 and a half stone. So I, 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 I kind of. Uh, it's a little, it's a little, you're, there are easier victims to pick on. There are easier victims. So, so yeah. crack on. if someone wants to have a go, crack on. But, <laughs> but, uh, certainly, I mean, people like Julie, for example, have really been on the, the receiving end of it. And they're, yeah, yeah. I, 
huge admiration for, for people like that. No, I do too. And, and I actually believe, and, and Lucy said this to me in our, our final message of, of our podcast. She said, I actually think it's going to get worse for you guys in the United States before it gets better because you guys don't get it yet. And, uh, you know, I sadly have to concur because it's one of those things where we just don't get it as a group yet. I shout it from the mountaintops, you know, every time, every podcast I talk about, it's like, Hey, I'm a, I'm a left center liberal. I love all y'all, but we just got to stop judging other people. We got to understand. And this is to your point. It isn't as important to agree as it is to understand. Mm. I don't care if you agree with someone's purview, but just understand where they came from. If they're a religious person who grew up in a very religious environment and the people they look up to are religious and you can't understand why they can't grok trans ideology, which by the way, is a moving and fluid ideology. It's, it's not okay to call them racists and bigots and transphobes and all these terrible names because all it does is push them further away. And the same thing with defund. Everyone's a racist. White people are racist by definition. We have a woman named Robin D'Angelo here in the United States who makes a living on that exact mantra. All white people are racist. And you're like, okay, you can't do that. Can't say that. It's not going to work. And, and, you know, we have intellectuals like yourself pushing back on this. Uh, there's a guy named John McHorter who wrote a book called Woke Racism. And I read that book after I read yours. And I laughed out loud because he actually says it's not like a religion. Liberalism is a religion today. And we need to understand that because it has that same power as a religion specific to how everyone moves in concert. And so, yeah, just to wrap this up, Paul, I, again, I really appreciated your book. I thought it was very well crafted. I thought it was brave that you put up with a bunch of nonsense. And I really enjoyed that. You're it's, you know, when you zoom out, it's what I always tell my friends in America, zoom out, <laughs> let's, let's look past America, see what else is going on out there. Britain has been an example for me. Australia and some of my friends in Scandinavia that I've been talking to over the last six months, they're all dealing with this, right? In one way or another. And the similarities are not just American Britain. It's everywhere where we have this divide among our fellow humans. And I think we just need to start to, to your point in your book, we need to embrace each other, understand each other, whether we agree or not. That's what's important. I, I completely agree. And, and, you know, I'm a great believer in diversity of opinion. I certainly, even within the Labour Party and the wider Labour movement in Britain, I, I argue that, you know, people should contest each other's views. And of course, yeah. we should have those debates. That's the lifeblood of democracy. It's the lifeblood of, of politics. But you know what, if I disagree with you, don't try and cancel me. If I disagree right. with you, don't try and ruin my livelihood. If I disagree with you, don't tell me I'm somehow morally inferior as a human being. And particularly when what I'm doing is articulating views still held by millions of voters in this country, and actually, which just a decade or two ago were absolutely mainstream. Um, you, as a hyper-liberal, may have gone off on this particular path where you've decided that uh, a kind of radical new worldview should be received as the conventional wisdom but don't expect me to come down that road with you necessarily and understand that if I don't come down that road with you, that doesn't make me less of a person or it doesn't make my community who doesn't want to go down that road less of, you know, less of a community because of it. Um, and the more we need more people in public life speaking out and resisting it, 
because it seems to me that a, a very well-organised and very vocal minority in many respects have been allowed to set the agenda for too long. And if they're not willing to engage and understand, then they need to be challenged and resisted. And it's like anything, once you dip your toe in the water, you realise that actually it's not as cold as I thought it might be. And the more people who do that, um, then the more chance we've got of pushing back. And that, I think, is really important. I agree. And that's why I thank you for what you're doing. And that's why I'm going to continue doing what I'm doing, because <laughs> I just got to say it. I'm too, I have too big of a mouth not to say it. So I, I, <laughs> I just have yeah, to keep too. doing it. <laughs> Thanks a lot, man. I really appreciate your time, Paul. Pleasure. Thanks for the invitation, Joe. I enjoyed it. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you dig what we're doing over here, please subscribe. And while you're at it, please download an episode or two and leave a review. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Until next time, big hugs.